and welcome. You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, please welcome your host, Mike Seeley. Welcome to Diversity Matters, the show that brings captivating conversations with fascinating guests from all walks of life. I am thrilled to invite Matt White, who is a good friend of mine, to share his career journey and experiences. Matt has carved out a long-established career in the music industry. His journey has been both influential and exciting. He grew up listening to a mixture of music from soul, calypso, reggae, jazz and funk, and started out as a local DJ playing at house parties for friends, then moving on to playing with Rap Attack, one of the biggest sound systems on the R&B scene at the time. He then moved on to join Soul to Soul with Jazzy B, and his DJing has taken him all over the world playing at clubs and festivals. Matt is also a radio presenter and currently hosting his two-hour category show on London's top soul and R&B station, My Soul Radio, every Wednesday from 9pm, where listeners tune in from all over the world. He is also a music and artist promoter and has previously worked with some of the biggest names in the industry with clients such as Nicole Scherzinger, Rihanna, Dr. Dre, Eminem, and many more. Matt, welcome to the show. Nice to see you, Mike. Nice to see you. Well, you've had, as I've mentioned, um, quite a long-standing career in the industry, but just go back to the very beginning how did you actually really get into the business itself i'm not sure whether it was luck or sheer bloody mindedness so maybe a bit of both really and maybe i don't know i i kind of used to write things into a book and sort of i guess people now call it manifestation but i used to write down sort of the things that i wanted to do uh so i wanted to play on kiss fm done that wanted to work yeah. with dr dre done that you know all those kind of things i used to sort of write down and you know some of the people I wanted to meet and stuff and I, a lot of them I managed to achieve there's a couple that I'll probably never get to do but you know not for want of trying uh so I guess it was kind of uh, an element of me just being really determined in kind of what I wanted to do as a, as a youngster and I mean I did start fairly young I started buying music when I was uh I think about 10 or 11 I had an older brother that was into music and he used to go to all the clubs and he had friends that were DJs and that were working on the scene. And my brother used to help out do merchandising for some of the acts that used to come over. So he'd come home with like the latest maze t-shirts and hats oh, wow. and, and Al Jarreau and people like that. And then he'd get stuff signed from Kenny Burke and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of grew up around, you know, people that had music sort of woven mm-hmm. into their life, you know, the family from, you know, having a very sort of mixed heritage. We had everything that was being played. You know, my mum was into soul jazz uh funk pop reggae calypso you know my dad was into that kind of stuff as well he wasn't so much into the reggae and calypso he was much more soul and and jazz and funk and i guess my journey just went from sort of collecting records and being the the young guy on the scene you know i was at the age of 16 i was already six foot two so i used to go out (laughs) to clubs you know 
when I shouldn't be, I should be at home studying and I was out at clubs. You could pass that minimum age barrier. Because I could, back then, you know, people weren't asking for ID. It was like, yeah, you're tall, in you go. Uh, and then I had a friend, uh, well, my uncle, he had a friend that used to work the doors in some of the West End clubs. So he used to see me and he'd be like, oh, you're Tony's nephew, in you go, son. And I used to sort of get in, I'd get all the VIP cards and stuff like that and, you know, never have a problem getting in. So I was a raver on the scene. I was a collector of music. And then I started to find myself becoming frustrated with some of the DJs that I was listening to mm. uh, because of the way they put music together. I didn't really like it. I was like, oh, this is, I could do better than this myself. So I literally was like, right, that's it. I'm going to go buy decks. I'm going to do it myself. And I grew up listening to uh, a guy called Paul Trouble Anderson, who as a DJ, technically, he was like my absolute idol. You know, there was a few other DJs on the scene that I liked as well, but Paul was the guy for mixing mm-hmm. when it comes to sort of, you know, what I call the hip hop style of stuff. I was into the scratching and cutting of people right. like Wizkid and Grand Wizard, Theodore and people like that. And, you know, a lot of those names, people be like, who are they? But they, these are like the forefathers of hip hop, you know, and I grew up listening to them, collecting their tapes. Yeah, yeah t- totally. The pioneers. I grew up listening to them, collecting their tapes, studying what they were doing, listening to the music, figuring out what it was. Because some of the music I had, some of the music my brother had, so I used to steal some of his records. And then I'd sort of, you know, collect over a period of time. I, I'd sort of worked hard. I, I did jobs, you know, from everything from a paper round to being a butcher. I was a butcher for a few years just to, oh, wow. you know, to, to, you know, get enough money to buy turntables and a mixer. And that was wow. kind of where it all started. And, and it's ca- kind of gone on from ever since then. That's brilliant. You know, one of the things I'm just going to pick up on very quickly, you kind of mentioned, um, you know, following the pioneers and you got into mm. – uh, mixing and scratching. Yeah. yeah. I guess when you kind of look today, DJing has changed so much. I'm, I'm assuming you scratch with vinyl. And I yeah. remember I used to see you do it. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of DJs these days are actually scratching on their laptops and stuff like that, yeah. which is, I guess it's a lot easier to do it that way, right? Um, do you know what? I think there's, there's some aspects of it I love and some of us I'm not a big fan of. So... For me, I, I still, whenever possible, I'll go out and I'll still use turntables, but I'll use my laptop as, instead of having a record box, I have my laptop as my record box, mm-hmm. and I use the turntables to play the music. Uh, so there's ways of delivering the music through the turntables, through your laptop. And then there's some that use their laptop as the you know the library, and then they have what they call CDJs or controllers, which are the sort of, you know, the they look like computers, they act like computers, and they play the music in the same way. And what I kind of like about that is the accessibility. It means that you don't need to go out and buy 700, 800 pound, 1000 pound, a pop turntables. You know, that's how much they cost each. You can just go out and buy one controller, one, have one laptop. You can get a cheap one from, you know, Curry's PC world or other, you know, outlets that we're not going to advertise. And you can buy a controller for a few hundred quid as well. And you can be a DJ. I guess what I don't like about it is that you sometimes get people that are, not really in it for the for the love for the music for the art because it is an art you know it's yeah. it's a form of art it's a you know it's a performance art you know uh, and they just do it because it's like a, a either a quick way to make money or just mm-hmm. a way to sort of do something to sort of get by and then some don't really take the time to to work out you know how to actually play music properly you know because yeah. it's one thing to sort of press play and press stop but it's actually putting the music together in the right way that it sounds nice, it blends nice, it has a feeling to it, and you have a sort of, uh, you know, I find that each DJ that's that's a little bit unique tends mm-hmm. to stand out. The ones that just, sta- 
you know, do the same thing over and over and they sound like everyone else, they don't really stand out. They don't really cut through. Yeah. So there's there's good and bad to it all. Your your career itself has covered quite a number of different aspects of, of the industry. I actually remember when you were at Polydor. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just talk a little bit about what you did at Polydor, how you got there. I think you're also at Universal yeah. Music. Was that uh, the well, that was so. So what happened was when I first joined Polydor, uh, it was part of what they used to call Polygram, which I think was a Dutch company mm. back then. And then Polygram got taken over by Universal and we became part of Universal. Uh, and I went, you know, I, I sort of started off, you know, not, not so much a T-boy, but I started off in promotions, just like a guy who used to sort of sit there and talk to DJs on the phone, send them records. Mm. And back then CDs didn't really exist. Only a few, a few radio guys CDs. It was all about records. So I'd literally be, you know, stuffing records into these like cardboard mailers and sending them out, writing their names on it, putting a little note in there for each DJ. And I'd be sending hundreds and hundreds of records a month to all these DJs up and down the country. And then it's my job to then call up the DJs and find out what they like, what they don't like, what they think is going to be hot in the next, you know, year or so or whatever, whatever. And that was kind of where I started off. And then gradually over a period of time, I was there for 17 years. I worked my way up to what they used to call like head of black music. So I would do everything from Timberland, Eminem, Dr. Dre, 50 Cent, everything from, you know, working with the artists, uh, doing promo to getting their records out to the people to make sure that the TV company that was promoting them or the internal companies, uh, uh, internal departments that were promoting them had all the relevant tools that they need to get the job done as well. But then equally explaining the story of each artist to, you know, the people that were working on it because not everyone understands 50 Cent is about or what Timberland is about or their history or, you know, the sort of the, the, the street killer ability they might have. Mm-hmm. All these things have to be kind of explained sometimes. And that was kind of my role was to sort of be that conduit between the artist and the label and the people that were working on promoting the records and the artists. Okay. So, wow, 17 years in, in the industry. And, you know, one yeah. of the things from, uh, I guess, from a layman, you know, looking at the music industry, you can see that it's extremely diverse because of the amazing artists and groups that are out there. Um, is that level of diversity reflected in, you know, behind the scenes and in the boardrooms? So that's an interesting point, because as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, you know what, in the early days of when I first started working in the record company, there weren't many people like me because mm. when you look at me, a lot of people think, oh, he's a white guy. But no, my <laughs> heritage is mixed. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm from a Caribbean background, uh, but I'm just, I just came out white like a white yardie, you know? <laughs> you know? That's what I love about white yardie as well. Like, I got so much respect for him because he's that guy that's just straight up Caribbean, yeah. Jamaican, and he's just, you know, as white as they come when you look at him. But as soon as he opens his mouth, you know straight away he's a Jamaican. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and that was kind of like me. I used to say to a lot of people, "I'm like the the sheep in wolf's clothing, or the wolf in sheep's clothing," because a lot of people would look at me that were in the industry, and they were, you know, a lot of them were white, a lot of them didn't understand black music or black culture, and they don't understand that that's kind of where I've come from. Yeah. That's kind of what I grew up around. So I, I was like the guy that was in there was like the secret missile, you know, so just in there question. to disrupt and open up the doors. Did that open doors for you? The fact that you uh, you know, you look like a, a white person. Do you, do you think that helped you in, uh, in your journey? It's it's interesting because you say that, but the guy who actually recruited me into Polydor at the time was a black guy, okay. and he was a guy who 
his name was Steve Jervier, uh, very well-known club and radio DJ at the time, and he became an A&R and a, a producer as well. And he was working at Polydor, and he was like, look, Matt, I need someone to come in and help me out. This is what I'm doing. And he explained it to me. And I don't know whether he did that because I look white or because he knew that I knew what I was doing and I knew my shit because I'd had a history of working with, you know, the likes of Rap Attack, biggest sound system out of West London. I was working with Soul to Soul at the time, biggest sound system in uh, North London, but, you know, sort of taking over Kiss Mm -hmm. FM and taking over the West End clubs as well where they had Africa Centre and stuff like that. And then I progressed from there to working at Catcher Groove Records where I was in a record shop literally laying off all of the biggest DJs at the time with all the latest music. So everyone from Giles Peterson, Norman Jay, Trevor Nelson, mm-hmm. all these guys that were superstar DJs, Pete Tong, I was in there laying records off to them. I was giving them their records. Right. They were coming to me for their music. So that was my job back then. So I think Steve knew, like, okay, this guy, he can operate in different ways because he knows his music, but he looks a certain way. So he'll walk into a meeting and people will be like, okay, like they, they, their guard is down, you know, they're not expecting mm-hmm me to maybe be the way that I am or know the things that I know. So I was very comfortable sitting in a meeting with black executives or black artists, but at the same time I could sit in a meeting with white executive and white artists and still have that conversation about music and be knowledgeable about it. Mm-hmm. Did, I, I, did it, did it make it easier? I'm not sure because there were times where I had to break down barriers with some of the American artists and some of the American uh, executives right. because they look at me and they go, Oh, he's a white guy doesn't really know what he's doing. But then after a period of time, they're like, oh, actually, this guy's like really clued up. Yeah. And what about today? Has it got better today? Has the industry changed behind the scenes? Are there more black people in boardrooms? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, during my time, and I started in the, you know, the sort of mid-90s, we had so much success with the artists that it made the record label, whether it was white mixed race or whatever they were, it made the executives go, actually, there's money to be made out of this. And they didn't really care. They just wanted to make money. You know, it's a record label. They want to make money. So they looked at black music as a way of making wise words before it never really used to make that much money for them. And it wasn't just about the American artists making the money. They were getting success with British artists as well. Mm. So now when I walk through uh, some of the British labels and I look at some of the people that are involved, so much diversity in there. And I think now what you're seeing is a reflection in the charts when you start to see all the bigger artists that are out there. If you look at them, a lot of them are, are, are coming from black backgrounds mm. and mixed heritage background. So, yeah, you know, I think a lot has changed. Uh, I think probably more can still be done. Yeah. But I think we've made massive steps forward uh, than we had sort of 20 odd years ago. Yeah. Now, I think the other thing that I, I've seen changing is obviously with – social media now being ever present there are potential artists who are actually choosing maybe not to go through a label yeah you know and they're they're doing it themselves what do you think of that does that does that work is it helping i'm a big fan Mm -hmm. i'm such a big fan of it because you know i think uh and this is what i was coming uh about with the accessibility of uh, being able to be a DJ nowadays. It's the same with music. Making music now has never been easier to do. Uh, You don't Mm. need to have a band. You don't need to have a guitar player. You don't need to have an orchestra. You don't need to have a recording studio. You can pretty much do everything now on a laptop. You know, it's it's gone that way. Uh, 
you can get a microphone, you can plug it into your laptop and boom, you've got a recording studio, you're away. So from my perspective, I'm a big fan of the sort of do it yourself because I think you have as an artist, probably more control. You can just be creative. You can create music and then you can release it how you want to release it. You might only want to put it on YouTube. You might want to put it on Spotify. You might not want to put it on iTunes. You can do whatever you like, really. You're in complete and utter control. You can have your database. You can have mm-hmm. everything done from your laptop. Your laptop can be your office, can be your studio, can be your everything. You know, and I think that's, for me, I think that's the greatest the greatest gift that the the sort of, the digital and technology age has given to people, you know, like me or artists that want to sort of, you know, create music and and do what they, you know, what they love doing the most. And do you think that that has then diminished the stranglehold and the power that these labels had, or do you think they're still as as strong as ever? So here, here's how I look at it. I look at it uh, as in. As an artist, if you're new and upcoming, I would suggest you do everything yourself to a point. There is that point, that tipping point, where you need someone else to maybe come in and push you over that level of of being, you know, someone that's well known in the UK and maybe parts of Europe to being given that global platform. I think someone like a Stormzy has demonstrated that perfectly. He did a lot of stuff himself, signed to a major label, and the rest is history. Mm. I think there's so much that the major labels can do in terms of the operation they offer you, the distribution they offer you, the ability to get into places, you know, on TV that maybe uh, an independent artist couldn't reach. So there is still a lot of value in major labels and what they bring to the table. But I think if I was a, a young artist trying to break through now, I would look to do a lot of it myself because you have more power, you have more creative control. And then when you get, that moment when you're on that tipping point and a major label knocks on your door, the check you can command is so much more mm-hmm. than if you go in there as a raw, you know, unsigned, no history, no fan base type artist. So if you are, you know, and there are lots of very young people who are very interested in in making their own music, but what, what advice would you give for someone who they don't quite know how to start things off? You know, how do they get the type of support, help, guidance to, you know, to showcase their own talent? Tough question, because I think if you don't really know where to start, then you kind of you're on the journey to figuring out what you are as an artist. You don't just Mm. go, okay, this is where I start now. I'm an artist you know, becoming an artist isn't just an overnight decision. It's like a, a process, you know, you have to kind of figure out, you know, and I think the more you experiment, the more you do things the more you'll figure out what kind of artist you are and the sort of music you're into and the music you want to make and how you make it and how you can sound the best so it's it's not an easy question to ask like how do you start i would say the best thing to do is just if you're a rapper or a singer is to just you know pick up your phone start writing lyrics down or singing voice notes or whatever melodies all those kind of things you know a, a great start but and then you know if you've got a laptop you know whether it's Mac or whether it's a PC, find some software that can give you the, the ability to just create music. You know, on mm-hmm. on uh, Macs, a lot of them come with a, a program called GarageBand, which you can put samples in. You can create music. You know, I'm sure there's something similar on on Microsoft as well. But uh, that's what I would do. Yeah, great. <clears throat> now you've you've been in the industry a long time. Where where are you today? What is your what is your goal right now? Wow. 
what is my goal right now? <laughs> to, to, I don't know. I, I, I think at my age, I'm, I'm kind of heading towards that retirement zone where you hang up your headphones. <laughs> so right now, I, I'm just enjoying, you know, what I'm doing, which is I, I like being on the radio. That for me is such a massive buzz. I love being in the clubs and playing music to people and seeing them happy. Again, massive buzz. I like playing at festivals when you've got so many people together in like mm. one zone and you kind of, you've got the control over it and you're just in, you know, playing the music you love and seeing the reaction from it. So I guess I'm just going to enjoy it more and more. I guess I'm still on a journey for, you know, learning about music. There's so much music out there. And even mm. now there's old records. I'm like, I didn't know. Or there's like little stories you find out about. So I'm just enjoying, you know, the uh, the tail end of my DJ career, as they say. <laughs> Great. And, you know, one of the things that I've obviously in the last few years I've seen is, you know, when you, you look at the the format that, that music comes on, vinyl in the last few years seem to mm-hmm. have made a strong comeback. Right. And you have mm-hmm. quite a large vinyl record collection. Um, yep. And I know a lot of people who have collected vinyl and swear by vinyl and wouldn't get rid of their vinyl. But I mean, what do you do with it long term? You know, once you've oh, God. You know, hung up your headphones, etc. Okay. What are you going to do with all of that music? Oh, <laughs> life's bigger, biggest dilemma, I think, <laughs> is what do I do with all this music? OK, so I have some music in my house. As you can see, there's some of it on the mm-hmm. sides and I'm slowly whittling through bits and pieces trying to figure out what I what I want what I don't want what I'm going to get rid of what I'm going to sell what I'm going to throw away but what people don't realize is I have another collection somewhere else which is about 70,000 records oh my uh, god which I haven't even started to dent and I don't know at some point I'm just going to have to make a decision whether I'm going to you know move home and have a giant library of records uh which is a possibility or I'm just going to have to go, you know what, I'm done. I have to sell it all and just, you know, close my eyes and just let it go because I don't think it's fair to just have it locked up in storage when there's people out there that I know would really like it and really enjoy it because that is, you know, the thing for me about, about vinyl is when you put that needle down on that groove and you hear it crackle Mm. and you feel the warmth of the way it sounds, it's so different to a digital recording. It just sounds so different, you know. It just feels different. It sounds different. So I think uh, to have it all locked up in storage is is, is a bit of a crime against humanity, really. So and at some point, something's going to have to give. I'm just not sure what. But seventy thousand records, you know how do you how do you store yeah. them? I mean, I'm sure that uh, the atmosphere and heat and cold and all of that has an impact on it, right? So. I'm very lucky. I've had a lockup for about 10 years that is completely watertight. It's alarmed. It's got a very consistent temperature and humidity. Doesn't get hot, doesn't get cold. So I'm very lucky in that respect and they're still in good shape. Uh, I had one one moment where there was a leak and one box of records got slightly water damaged, but the leak was fixed and everything's fine. So I'm very lucky. But, uh, yeah, I've I've got to make a decision (laughs) soon, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, um, throughout your career, your your talents, et cetera, have have probably not gone unnoticed by your peers because you have Mm -hmm. been – you have received a number of nominations for Best Club and Best Radio DJ in your time. And I think as well I read that 
you won a silver award for the New yeah. York Festival's radio program in an advertising yeah. awards. Yeah. Um, so here's how the does that thing. make you I, feel? <laughs> it's, it's it's strange because I when I I guess when I was uh, deep into my you know my uh, my radio career at Kiss FM, uh, I was nominated every year by Mobo uh, Music of Black Origin, uh, whether it was club DJ, best club DJ, or best radio DJ. Now, at the time, I had arguably the biggest club event happening weekly because I used to run a night called Smooth at Ministry of Sound. Mm-hmm. That was like the first I ever hip hop and R&B, <laughs> first ever hip hop and R&B night yeah. in Ministry of Sound. Yeah. We were we were doing like two and a half thousand people a week in there. I also had a residency on a Sunday night at a place called Bar Rumba, which was about three hundred and fifty people a week. Uh, that was there every single week, and that ran for 13 years. So during that time, I had the biggest club nights in London and the longest-running club nights in London, and I never won Best Club DJ, okay? Never. Mm. I never won Best Radio DJ, despite having arguably the two biggest radio shows on air at the time. But yet when I got nominated for an award in America, I won the award. <laughs> so, so, so go figure. What does that say about the judging? (laughs) Well, I got recognized more in in America than I was recognized here. So it is what it is. You know, look, it's great to be nominated for these things and it's great to win. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that's not why I did it. I did it because I love the music, because Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the culture uh, and because it was the kind of thing that even now, if I do my radio show, I come out or if I'm doing a club night or an event somewhere, I come out and I'm buzzing. I'm, li- I, I mean, you know, literally I can't, I can't relax. I'm buzzing because I've enjoyed it so much. Yeah. And that yeah. happens every single time and every single week. I get nervous before I go on air. I get nervous before I go on stage or before I have to play in front of people. And I'm, you know, and then when I come off, I'm like on cloud nine. So mm-hmm. even now I still love it. That's great. And, uh, just tell me a little bit about, I know you, you've worked with many of some of the big, big artists mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dr. Dre and Eminem and yeah. 50. And tell me, what was that like? What, it's like? what is it like working with them? Are they like really down to earth? Are they divas? You know, what's been your experience? Do you know what? I've been so lucky because a lot of the artists I've worked with, they, they see me on maybe a different level. So when I'm sitting down talking to them about music and what they're doing and, and their recording process and <clears throat> the people that are featured on their record and the people that they've worked with, they kind of realize that I'm really into it. So mm-hmm. I've never, ever had diva moments, not with my artists. You know, I've, I've worked with everyone, you know, small people, you know, like Jeanne, uh to superstars like 50, like Timbaland, like Eminem, like Dre. And just had so much fun working with them. And it's it's weird, but sometimes the bigger they are, the more professional they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people like Black Eyed Peas, people like Dre, people like M. These guys are like military. They're on point. They're drilled. 50 Cent, like one of the hardest working people I've ever come across. Dre, never late, always on time, knows exactly what he's got to do. And just always shows up to the party and does it properly. 
So from that perspective, I've been maybe very, very lucky. I've never had divas. I've interviewed a couple of divas on my radio show, and I won't name names, but one actually locked themselves in the toilet for nearly an hour, and I was like, come on, this is like live radio. Uh, so, yeah, but but I've never actually had to, you know, sort of work alongside them for any period of time. Okay. All right. So I'm going to ask you a couple of, like, quick fire questions. Um, okay. Tell me who is your favorite female artist of all time? Of all time? Oh, yeah. Man. I'm not making it easy for you. <laughs> Look, there's a lot that I could read off and say, you know, the likes of mm. Whitney, Mariah, people like that. But I think if I was to really drill it down hard, I would probably say Minnie Ripperton. Mm. Okay. Uh, her voice, unbelievable. Uh the things she used to sing about, uh, I think the story uh, of her and her career and how she yeah. passed away, it, it just left a lasting, it touched me in ways that yeah. maybe a lot of our artists couldn't touch me. But yeah, Minnie Ripperton is probably one of my favourite, favourite female, female singers of all time. Mm-hmm. What about male artists? You're going to ask the male now, aren't you? I knew of that was course. coming. <laughs> oh, come on. Look, again, you know, I could reel off so many. Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson. 50 Cent, Timberland, Dre, M, all those guys, so many of them, I truly like have so much love and respect for and, you know, admire their craft, Stevie Wonder. But the one guy who I always consistently come back to, I think he's like the singer's singer and the guy, if you're really into emotional uh, soul R&B music, I will say Donny Hathaway is my guy. Okay. Wow. That's great. Um, now, of course, you like many genres of black music. What What is your mm-hmm. favorite genre? Oh, you can't do that to me. <laughs> can't do that to me. These are questions I know I couldn't answer myself, if I'm honest with you. Oh, so. my God. <laughs> okay, so I'm a big fan of rare groove, like two-step mm-hmm. soul music. Yeah. I would be on ballads. that one. Yeah. I love that. But equally, I'm a massive fan of hip hop. I love the energy. I love, for me, it was like, it was like a black punk movement in terms of, you know, if you're, if you live in England and you understood the punk movement, it was rebellious. It Mm -hmm. was uh, kids just doing it DIY style, talking about what they were going through and how they felt. And when I first encountered rap music in the late eighties, that's kind of what I felt I got that energy from. You know, it was DIY, two, you know, one DJ, two turntables, a mixer playing old break beats with an MC rapping over the top, expressing what they felt they wanted to yeah. express, whether it was, you know, hip hop, bebop, do your thing, break dancers, whatever, or talking about what was going on in the world. So from that perspective, I think if I had to drill it down to my favorite, oh, you can't do this. <laughs> this is awful. Because I love reggae, I love soca, but I think if I had to yeah. narrow it down to the two, it'd be R and B, soul, and hip hop. Yeah. I just can't separate the two. So and for me, I guess R and B and hip hop. I, 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 I'm gonna have to plead the fifth on that one. Okay, now that's good. I, I wouldn't be able to answer that question myself because I, I find that you know, depending on what mood you're in, yeah, 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 uh, depend, you know, how you're feeling will will yeah. kind of drive what type of music you exactly. like to listen to, you know, and exactly. some of the old music that I hear just bring back memories mm. of those days. 
you know. Yeah. So I love the early hip hop. I love the kind of the nineties hip hop with you know groups like Tribe Called Quest, Quest exactly. Stella Soul. <laughs> yeah, that's some of my favorites. You asked me to choose between Minnie Ripperton and Tribe Called Quest. I <laughs> yeah. cannot do that. It's oh, not dear. on. I know. It's. Um, I, I just wanted to see what you would say though, because I, obviously you know you have a tremendous amount of knowledge in the industry across different genres. You've worked with different kind of groups and yeah. artists. I knew it was going to be, I knew it was going to be hard. I think, I think the more, you know, the harder it is to separate Yeah, because you could sit there and go, but, Oh, that'd be no Stevie wonder. That would be no Donny yeah. Hathaway. You know, there's so many like James Brown, imagine life without James Brown. Come on. Yeah. But then saying that well, we wouldn't have half of the music we have feet. today. Yeah. We wouldn't have half the music we have today. Um, tell me something. If you could go back to your 16-year-old self as you first kind of <laughs> got into this industry, yeah. what what advice would you would you give? Buy less records. <laughs> Don't have 70,000 vinyl records. Oh my god, look, you know, it's 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 weird, but I moved houses twice because I couldn't house my records anymore and I think I should have been I used to buy so much and then I used to get given so much mm. and I didn't have any like real quality control in terms of what I was buying and what I was, I was just actually buying anything that moved uh, and I'd buy two, three, four copies of things because I was that guy that used to like the scratching. I used to have to have two copies of minimum. And if I was going through the two copies and they were getting a lot of marks and sounds on them, I'd have to go and buy two more. So there's some mm. records I got four of, you know, some I've even got six of. Uh, so I'd probably buy less records. I'd probably save more money and probably take less trips to America to buy records. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where you get, that's where you can get some of those classics uh, from for sure. Mm. Going forward. I know that, um, you know, you, you've spoken about potentially retirement and hanging up the headphones, but mm. certainly over the next couple of years. Um, no, actually one question I want to ask you before we get there is, yeah. Okay, the pandemic had a major impact on yeah. the events industry and on DJs. Yeah. How did you how did you cope through that period? It's, it's yeah, okay. That's that that was traumatic for a lot of people. There's a couple of friends that I lost during the pandemic, and then there's some incredible DJs and uh, artists that I think you know because of what was going on in the world and how they were financially set up. They weren't able to continue doing what they were doing. And now some of them are doing like all kinds of crazy jobs and they'll probably never come back to the entertainment industry. Me personally, I guess I was very lucky in that I had an incredibly supportive wife. Mm -hmm. uh, I had my business set up in such a way that I'd already kind of pivoted because I was doing property so I, I had that in the background, but equally I'd, I'd always been that guy that'd been straight down the middle and, you know, I'd paid my taxes and declared this, that and the other. So when it came to, you know, not being able to do events and, and DJ, I was insulated because I was like everyone else. I was, you know, getting money from the government because I paid my taxes and they were saying, well, you can claim this back. So I was like, okay, mm. cool. I'll, I'll claim what I need to claim. And I was, I was insulated in that respect and that I had property as well. And I was able to draw, you know, money from that as well. Sure. So I, I was very lucky in that I could pick and choose kind of when I wanted to go online and, and DJ and do things. And then there was a few events that happened, you know, in the sort of the breaks between, you know, when we were in lockdown, when we were out of lockdown mm -hmm. and I had my brand. So I was able to do events as well. 
Uh, and I was doing the radio show all the time. So I was able to sort of continue relatively, you know, normal. Obviously, things were different, but I was able to sort of still continue doing what I was doing and doing the things that I love the most. So in that respect, yeah. I was very, very lucky. But I know there's a lot of people that weren't so lucky. And, you know, like yeah. I said, some people, you know, unfortunately lost their lives. Some people got very sick. And I've got one friend who's still very sick. So, you know, it's uh, – I, I guess I was blessed. I was lucky. Yeah. Okay. And as we've come out the of the pandemic um, and events are – I guess, kicking off and starting back up, certainly in the industry I'm in, but in, in the music industry, what is that like? Are you seeing a lot more bookings now? Are there a lot more events taking place? It's, it's really weird because I think most of the events that I do are of a certain age demographic. Uh, so most of the people that come to my events are of sort of 40 years of age and above. Mm. And when we first came out of full lockdown and, and everything was kind of open, Oh my God, it was like, it was absolutely crazy. It was pandemonium. There was gigs left, right and center to the mm -hmm. point where I was like, I can't do all these gigs. Like, I had to turn stuff down. And then after about six months, you started to see that it was like slowing off, slowing off. And then we had that little moment. I don't know if you remember it. It was like the sort of Christmas where there was like another strain of COVID that was yeah. coming around and people were getting sick again. And a lot of the older audience, what I noticed that they were like, whoa, I don't really want to go out. So a lot of people dropped mm -hmm. off. So it became quite tricky again. And now with the cost of living crisis, because most yeah. of the people are kind of my age, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 50, you know, we're all worrying about, you know, our mortgages because they've all gone up. We're all worrying about our gas bill because that's gone through the roof, electricity bill, cost of living, the food crisis. So many things now are putting pressure on the finances yeah. of people like, you know, myself at my age. A lot of people are not really going out. Yeah. Uh, which is understandable, you know, it's not easy, you know, financially yeah. it's not easy. So it has, there has been a, a kind of, it's been a bit tricky for the last few months, but I'm hoping that, uh, you know, things will start to settle down and, and people's lives will start to become a little bit more normalized again. Because for, I think, what is it, best part of four years now, it feels like we've just been in this like mad cycle of lockdowns, pandemics yeah. and food shortages and, and, cost of living crisis and wars it's like come on man like can we just have a little bit of yeah, normal uh, for now it's almost like what's next right <laughs> exactly yeah wow well <clears throat> i do hope that um you know most of this stuff starts to get behind us as they begin to you know yep. things hope for, i you know i'm positive that things will improve i don't know when but over time um and things get better but um matt i really want to thank you for agreeing to join the show i think it's very very pleasure. insightful yeah very insightful the things you're talking about um you know if somebody wants to be a dj you know a young 14 year old who's thinking about hey i want to do a dj yeah what what would you tell them i guess believe in yourself first and foremost if you really want to do it you have to just focus on doing it uh practice 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 watch and learn so go out go to clubs listen to other DJs, find out if there's a DJ you like, admire, respect, uh, whether it's for their music choice or whether the way they play music, study what they do, how they do it. Uh, and then think about putting your own spin on everything. You know, what is, what is it that you're going to do that's going to stand you out from the rest of the crowd? You know, yeah. that makes you sound a little bit more unique. Uh, are you going to be that guy that's just a DJ playing music? Are you going to be a 
guy that just likes to mix so you can be a guy that likes to pick up the mic and talk to people you know what is it that that's going to make you stand out and be different all these things will help you on your sort of journey but equally you know you have to be patient i don't think anything happens overnight and if it does yeah. invariably it doesn't last long so you know whilst people think oh you know he came up in the 90s and he's doing anything i started really getting into it in the late 80s, early 80s, mm-hmm. mid 80s, I think it was, when I started to collect music and then I started to buy turntables yeah. and I started to practice, practice, practice. I was practicing for years before I got out anywhere. So, yeah, all those things yeah. combined and just have that self-belief and, and commitment to do it properly. Yeah. So it's, it's really about learning your craft, if that's your passion. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird, but, I, you know, I often hear people talking about thousand hours you know you have to practice i think for a thousand mm. or ten thousand hours or whatever. ten thousand yeah yeah there you go ten thousand hours yeah. and i was like really but then when i started <laughs> to think about it, i was thinking actually come to think of it i probably did more than ten thousand hours before mm. i actually got to go out there and do my thing so i, I it kind of makes sense i get it yeah excellent all right matt thank you so much for it's a pleasure. once again for for joining um this was great uh for the listeners if you want to listen to Matt on My Soul, you can download the app. It's at um, My Soul, M-I hyphen Soul. You can, you can go and download it on iOS or uh, I guess in, on many most mobiles, you can can download yep. it, right? And, and in tune iOS. into the station. Yeah. I uh, I typically listen to, to My Soul when I'm, when I'm traveling and I'm in a different country. I can, I tend to, tend to tune in and um hear some some really good vibes so uh yep do that listen to matt on his show on wednesday at nine uh and matt good luck for everything that's uh happening in the future and more bookings etc thank you um brilliant stuff all right well listen you take care and i'll certainly speak to you soon listening to this episode of diversity matters if you liked what you heard then be sure to hit like and subscribe and we'll see you next time